All right. <clears throat> Turn in your Bibles, if you would. This week, we're going to take a little departure from Matthew, believe it or not, and we're going to find ourselves in Luke chapter 19. And so if you want to follow along with us, there should be Bibles located in the seat pockets in front of you. If you prefer technology, you can type in Luke chapter 19 as we are going to look at Palm Sunday. Now, I do realize um, last week I made this uh, wonderful statement that, hey, if you want to know where we're going to be next week, all you got to do is just look ahead. We'll be in Matthew 14. And I, I did that very, you know, snidely and sort of sarcastically. I think it was uh, sanctified sarcasm, but it was probably just sarcasm. Um, so then my wife talked to me, and she said, are you going to do anything for Palm Sunday? Are you going to divert a little bit? I'm like, no, I just said. And then, uh, you know, as I started to think about where we're at and what the Lord really wants us to ponder on in this season and, and how, you know, so often we can go through this whole Easter season and not really reflect on these next two Sundays and really what they meant, I thought, you know, once again, this is the reason why she's called the blonde Holy Spirit right here. She speaks into my life. And so I had to stop and take a little step back. And I do think it's important for us to cover Palm Sunday and what's the significance. And next week, we'll look at Resurrection Sunday and its significance as well. But we are going to do it in our own way. We're going to go through the passages uh, expositionally. So if you want to make your way that direction, where we're going to start is in verse 28. <clears throat> but as you head that way, uh, by way of introduction, you might wonder, what is Palm Sunday anyway? Why do we call it that? Well, it is the triumphal entry of Jesus as he makes his way into Jerusalem. Now, it's not the first time Jesus had ever gone into Jerusalem. In fact, he'd been there several times, even as a boy. But this time is going to be very different. This is going to be him actually entering in as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And so we're going to get into that in just a moment when we begin looking at the text. But remember, as we've studied through Matthew, what's taking place in the nation of Israel is that the, that the anger surrounding Jesus, in particular for the religious right, the, the legalists, the Pharisees, had really it's growing right now. Right As we go through Scripture, we can see they're getting more and more angry. Uh, they begin to get hostile. They're actually planning and plotting how they might get rid of him. And so as we enter into Palm Sunday, we're now three years into his ministry, and, and things are at a boiling point, especially in the city of Jerusalem, where, which is kind of the religious and cultural hub of Israel today, as it was 2,000 years ago. And so the question you might ask as we look at this is, why then have the Pharisees not dealt with Jesus already? They've been letting these things go on and on and on, uh, seemingly for, for years, and they cannot manage to snuff him out. What is the issue really at hand? Why have they not dealt with him? And three things I wanted to share with you in the introduction. Uh, first, you have to understand he was exceedingly popular with the common people, not with the elite and the, the wealthy, but with the common people. He was healing, he was calling them to repentance, and he was exceedingly popular. And so for these religious elite, they were afraid of the common people. They were afraid that if they dealt with Jesus and had him executed, that the mob would actually come after them. And so they shied away from this, especially doing it in public. The second issue they had is uh, well, I pointed it out last week. Isaiah chapter 53 makes it clear that he had no uh, form or comeliness about him. What I mean by that is he looked like every other 30-year-old uh, Jewish guy. Uh, contrary to popular belief and how we like to westernize Jesus, he wasn't white. He wasn't a white dude. 
He was a little brown Jewish guy. He looked like all the other brown Jewish guys. They couldn't figure out which one he was, which is precisely why they had to pay Judas off to kiss him in the Garden of Gethsemane so they'd make sure they got the right guy. So he looked like all the others. He was able to slip and slide in and out of crowds. But then thirdly, what I want to point out and what I want you guys to really ponder on as we go through this scripture is this. It was not his time. The real reason that they were not able to deal with Jesus the way they so desired, the way they had built up in their hearts, it's because it was not his time yet. That in fact, uh, all things are set to a perfect time that God has preordained ahead of time. And Jesus knew this very well. And so, uh, keep that in the back of your mind as we go through Scripture about God's timing. Now, in Luke's account, Uh, I'll go back just a little bit into Luke chapter 9, verse 51, because as uh, I mentioned earlier, the the, uh, tempers and the the emotions in Jerusalem were rising to to an epidemic level. And as they were, the disciples knew, look, we had better not go to Jerusalem. Right? They, they knew that that's the spot, that's the, the hotbed for all this activity, and so we need to steer clear. But then in verse 51 of Luke chapter 9, and now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is speaking of Jesus. When the time had come for him to be received, when he knew the week was near, that he steadfastly set his face. I like the old King James. It says he set his jaw in place. He had that look, that determination about him that he was going to head to Jerusalem. Now that might seem minor, except when you think about this from the disciples' standpoint, that it took a tremendous amount of faith from the disciples' part to actually follow him into this place. They knew what he was walking into, as he knew also. Which is why in John chapter 11, I love when we looked at the different apostles, this is what Thomas had to say about heading towards Jerusalem in this time frame. John 11 verse 16, and then Thomas who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now I imagine Thomas didn't say that quite as excitedly as what I just shared it with you. I'm guessing Thomas said it something like this. Let us also go, we might as well die with him anyway. I mean, he's, he's our Lord. So I mean, that's the excitement that was around these guys. Or really, that's the reality they knew. And that's also the faith that they had. They knew that he was headed that direction and that the end was near, and yet they followed him anyway. So finally, by way of introduction, what I want to just reiterate to you is that nothing, nothing in your life or in my life can happen outside of the perfect timing of God. Now, we might doubt it in the middle of the storm and in the middle of the season, but what you're going to see this morning is that everything that takes place happens in his timing, and in his will. So, with all that said, let's go to Luke chapter 19. Let's begin in verse 28. And as we start this morning with the triumphant entry, uh, Jesus has just finished a a set of teaching. And so, in verse 28, Luke records, and when he had said this, this is his teaching he just came off of, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, 
But that area of Bethany might be familiar to you if you remember the story of Mary and Martha. Bethany is located just about five miles outside of Jerusalem. That's their hometown. Also, their brother named Lazarus, who Jesus had just raised from the dead. And so when he drew near to Bethany and Bethpage at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which one has never sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And so we begin by seeing Jesus give a command to two of his disciples to go into town and to get a colt or a, a donkey, one that had never been ridden before, so that he may ride into the city of Jerusalem. Now this might seem a, a little odd that a king would ride into a city on a donkey and not on a large uh, war horse. That's at least the way I'd like to ride into town if I'm going to go rolling up in some place. But uh, let me share with you that this has significance historically and biblically. And the place that I direct you back to is in the life of King Solomon and King David. So all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38, when uh, I go back there, I'm going to let you know that at this point in David's rule and reign in the history of Israel, he's coming to the end of his life. And so things are wrapping up for King David quickly. He's in his 70s. He's lived a hard life as a warrior. And so he's getting ready to pass off the scene. But as this happens, his oldest living son, a guy named Adonijah, decides he doesn't want to let anyone else take over his throne, what he thinks is his rightful spot. And so he begins to build up this coup against his dad to take over the nation of Israel. And so David gets word that Adonijah is planning to overthrow him and to take over the kingdom, and that's not at all what David had intended. In fact, the Lord had made it clear that his son Solomon, whose name means peace, by the way, would actually be the one that would take over. And so what David decides to do is take one of his mules or one of his donkeys and actually place Solomon on that. Because the transition of a kingship is for a king to take one of his donkeys that he rode into a town in peace and give it over to the next in line, the next one to follow him up. And so we see a transfer of power takes place whenever this happens. So in verse 38 of 1 Kings chapter 1, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon. That's the spring right outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And then Zadok, the priest, took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the horn, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. They proclaimed the entrance of King Solomon, who rode into the city of Jerusalem in peace. Precisely how Jesus is showing us he was going to ride a thousand years later into the city of Jerusalem, not in war, but in peace. And the transfer of power, what happened from David to Solomon, from father to son, 
is precisely what Jesus is showing in symbolic form between his father and then onto himself. Only he's not riding in on a donkey that anyone else had ever ridden. It's one that no one else had ever been seated on before. Now, this is drastically different than the second coming of Jesus. And this is the part uh, that so often gets missed. It's that in his second coming, he is not going to come in on a donkey. The nation of Israel wanted him to come in on a war horse to begin with. But instead, he chose to come in in peace so that we might be saved. But in Revelation chapter 19... Verse 11, this is what John the Revelator records about the second coming of Christ. He says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The second coming of Jesus when he enters the city of Jerusalem will be drastically different than the first. He is going to make things right and true, and he's going to be faithful to what he said he's going to do, and that is judge sin for what it truly is. So there you have both the first coming and the second of Christ laid out for you in Scripture. Now it also uh, speaks to prophecy given by Zechariah. This is uh, what Zechariah says in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Keep in mind, this is in the Hebrew Bible, in their Old Testament, written over 500 years before the arrival of Jesus, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Remember, Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It's Jehovah is salvation. Having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Precisely as was prophesied by Zechariah, 500 years before, here's Jesus arriving to town on a donkey, the foal, the child of a donkey. And so here we see Jesus fulfilling Scripture. Remember, as we've gone through Matthew, the key word in that book is fulfilled. He's fulfilling prophecy right before their very eyes. Now, for the disciples, he sends two of them into town, and he says, go and find this colt and loose it. And if anyone asks you, tell them, look, the Lord needs this. Now, can you imagine if you went to Pilsen's up here on the corner of 16 and 130, and you decided uh, the Lord told you to go in there and loose one of their colts, uh, or perhaps one of their rams. And you just climbed up into a ram and inserted the key and turned it. And when the salesmen scurry out to wonder what you're doing, I'm going to encourage you, try this. Just say, oh, the Lord needs it. The Lord has need of this Ram pickup truck. Four-wheel drive, jacked up, with dual exhaust. The Lord needs it. Now, you can imagine the kind of response that you're going to get in this case. And yet, what happens is, this is precisely what these men do in response to the owners of the colt who come out and say, whoa, 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 what's going on? The Lord has need. And what you find is uh, no response. They just allow it to take place. And I share that with you to say, as the Lord has commanded you to do things, even if they seem ridiculous in the moment, even if, if at that time you think that is the craziest thing, surely God's not going to be behind that. What you'll find is as you're in his will, um, I can't explain it other than it will just work. <laughs> it will just simply work. His will is going to be done. 
Now, this phrase is something I wanted to also point out as we've gone through Scripture. He tells them to say, the Lord has need of him. And I think that's important for us because um, when I look through Scripture at what the Lord needs, and I, I in particular grabbed uh, stories from the Gospel of Matthew, so you can track through this as we finish that out in the coming weeks. Uh, you're going to notice it when we get to Matthew 14, when we pick back up there, um, the Lord has need of fish and loaves. He cannot feed the 5,000 if the little boy doesn't volunteer the fish and the loaves. When we get to Matthew 22 and they're questioning Jesus about taxes and money and what should we do with these stinking Romans, he asked them for a coin. He didn't even have a coin in his pocket to show them. The Lord had need of a coin. When we get to Matthew 26 and we see the Last Supper, what we're going to celebrate over this next week, they gather in that upper room, but Jesus didn't own an upper room. He didn't even have a home. He was homeless. So he had need for them to provide a room for them. And then when we come to Resurrection Sunday, notice in Matthew 27, he doesn't even have a place to be buried. He needed a tomb. Someone, Joseph of Arimathea, had to step up and provide to the Lord a tomb. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 9, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church there in Corinth. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Think about that for a minute. That here's the God of the entire universe, and he had need he didn't have need because he didn't have the ability to produce out of thin air clearly he could have he put himself intentionally in a place of need to give you and I an opportunity to partner with him to be able to come alongside him and be what we just talked about in the announcements the hands and feet of Jesus it's not that he can't wipe out all need all the way around, except if he does, you and I don't get a chance. We don't get a chance at what, you might ask? We don't get a chance at riches. Because he allowed himself, Philippians 2 says he emptied himself completely of his God powers in order to allow you and I the opportunity to be rich. Do you see? So when they come into this village and they say the Lord has need, what they were really giving these men an opportunity to do was to partner together with the God of the universe. You see how special that is. That we, we so often think we're just uh, helping change clothes out or serving a meal. or th These things are always so minor, it seems. Yet all these men did was give up a donkey. I mean, I can tell you what the word is in the King James, right? Like, they just gave up a donkey, and yet in that, they were allowed to actually partner together with Christ to see his will being fulfilled. Now then, as they did that, you might notice also prior to taking the donkey, the colt, what they needed to do first, they needed to loose it. 
They had to take what was binding the colt, what was holding it back, before Jesus could use the donkey, follow with me here, before they could use the donkey, it had to first be unbound. And when you think about what uh, sin and shame has done in our lives, it binds us. It holds us back. It stops us from being able to fulfill that partnership that he so wants us to be able to step into that role. And the only thing that can loose it, it's the word of God. What was the only thing that loosed that donkey for these men? They didn't say, hey, Bob needs it. They didn't say, Timmy over here needs a donkey. They said, the Lord has need. The very word of the Lord so it could be fulfilled. That's what loosed that donkey. Now, I'm not calling you all a bunch of donkeys. Okay, I'm kind of calling you all a bunch of donkeys. But in order for us to be able to be partnered together with him, what I'm saying is we have to first loose ourselves through the word of God from our bondage in order to be able to be united with him. Continuing on now, in verse 35 again says, Then they brought him to Jesus, that being the, the colt, and they threw their clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, that's that mountain range on the east side of Jerusalem, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if they should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And so we see Jesus now riding into Jerusalem. For the first time in his ministry, he is now openly accepting praises as God in the flesh. All this time in ministry he'd had up to this point in time, he had uh, stepped away from that. He wanted to point all the glory only to God, trying to, to duck and, and dive around so that they didn't try to make him king too early. And yet at this time, it was the perfect time for him to actually accept the role that he had taken from even before the foundation of the earth. And so he openly accepts this for the first time, walking into the city, in fact, riding into the city on the donkey, and so the question, at least that I had as I was going through this, is what was so significant about this time? What was so important about this very time that he should have passed off all those other opportunities where he could have received praise and glory and honor, but now all of a sudden is the right time? Well, to answer that, what we see is in this place in history, what's taking place is the festival of Passover. Now, there are three major festivals in uh, the Jewish culture that they try to make their way back to Jerusalem for, especially in this day and age. And those are uh, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So in this particular time, this is the Feast of Passover that Jesus is now heading towards Jerusalem in order to celebrate. And as he's headed that way, I'm going to take you back to uh, Exodus chapter 12, so you can understand the significance of Passover. Many of you probably have heard that word, but perhaps you've never fully grasped just what Passover was supposed to memorialize. Exodus chapter 12, this is Moses now 
uh, speaking to the children of Israel before they exited the land of Egypt. Now, Egypt, I want to remind you, is always a picture in the Old Testament of the world. And as Moses is going to address the people up to this point, nine different times he's gone to Pharaoh, the ruler of all Egypt, and said, let my people go. And nine times a plague is hit. And nine times Pharaoh has begged Moses to pray so that the plagues could go away and then immediately changed his mind and continued to keep the people in captivity. Now, a total side note, but it, it, just throw it out there, food for thought. Uh, each one of these nine plagues specifically goes against the different god of Egypt. So each time what, what the Lord is doing is he is directly contradicting their false gods. But that's another story for another day. So now we are in this 10th plague that's going to come upon them. And in chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb... Let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make uh, your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or the goats. And now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And then the whole assembly uh, of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. In verse 7, And they shall take some of the blood and put it over the two doorposts of the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And then they shall eat the flesh uh, on, on that night, roasting in fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled with water, but roasted in fire, its head and its legs and its entrails. In verse 10, You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt around your waist and sandals on your feet you sh and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it with haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so this day you shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. So the feast of Passover begins there. With the literal passing over of the houses there, of the Israelite families in Egypt that took the blood of the lamb that they had sacrificed and put it over the top of the doorpost. It was the blood that made atonement for the sin in their house, and they did not lose the firstborn child in every one of their families like the rest of the nation of Egypt. This Passover is what the Lord used to bring his children, who he loved, out of the world, out of Egypt, into the land of promise. Which adds additional significance when you think about the words of John the Baptist who said this when he saw Jesus right before he baptized him. He said, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. Now you begin to see the significance of Passover. Here's Jesus walking in to the town of Israel on the 10th day of the first month, where he would stay in the city of Jerusalem for, you guessed it, four days for them to examine him, to look him over, to make sure he does not have spot or blemish. He is, in fact, deemed perfect, not only by the Jews, but also by Pilate himself, who said, I see no fault in this man. And on the fourth day, on Passover, as the sun was going down at twilight, they crucified the King of Kings, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world. You see, there's special significance for this time period, and Jesus knew that. That all those memorials that had taken place for all those thousands of years were all pointing back to this one event in history that would not do it year after year after year, but instead once for all. For all the world's sins is actually what he laid his life down for. One other thing I want to point out to you as we look uh, at Scripture um, is the importance of the personal relationship. If you think about the four days that they were to bring the lamb into the household, that may seem like an arbitrary number that the Lord threw out there. I would tell you this. If you've got kids at all and they love pets, you can imagine if you brought a cute little one-year-old lamb into your house, um, four days in, they're going to know everything there is to know about that lamb. They're probably going to give it a nickname like Lammy or Lamb Chop or Wooly. Then imagine having to slit its throat. It makes an entirely different personal relationship when you get to know the lamb. And then you have to sacrifice the lamb. Lastly, in verse 3, what we see is a transition actually in the life of a believer. In verse 3 of chapter 12, it says, Take for himself a lamb. Many of us had heard throughout our life about a lamb of God, this lamb out here somewhere. But then it, it, it's to go deeper than that in verse 4. Notice with me, you're to take, uh, it, it, in verse 4 it says, if the household is too small for the lamb. It changes the significance a little bit when a lamb becomes the lamb. And yet if you let it stop there in your life, where a lamb you've heard about only becomes the lamb, and you just begin to believe, but you don't take it any further than that, um, congratulations, what James says is that the demons believe that Jesus is God, and they tremble. It cannot stop there. That's why in verse 5 it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish. It's a personal relationship that you have to have with Jesus Christ that actually provides salvation. A lamb goes to the lamb and becomes your lamb. So what I put up here for you was knowing about the lamb isn't enough. It's just not. It has to be personal. Now, beyond just this important significance, as if this wasn't, wouldn't be enough for Jesus to make sure that this was the time that he enters the city of Jerusalem as the lamb of God, I want to talk to you a little bit about the prophetic. I haven't lost you all yet, so we'll see if we can do it on this next passage. Now we're going to go to Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, this is a prophecy that Daniel gets, which is known as the prophecy of weeks, 
of the 70 weeks in particular. Uh, Daniel's actually given this prophecy, interestingly enough, uh, by the angel Gabriel. That name might sound familiar because the angel Gabriel is the same angel that told Mary she was going to have a son. Anytime you see the angel Gabriel in Scripture, New Testament or Old Testament, he's always proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. And so we see him proclaiming this in Daniel chapter 9, uh, only about 600 years before uh, Jesus' actual birth. In chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your holy people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. In verse 26, And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And so we have Daniel getting this prophecy of the 70 weeks. Now, uh, the weeks that he's speaking of are not weeks like a week of days, but instead a week of years. They would be like our decade. If I say it's two decades, you'd know a decade is a 10-year period. And so what Gabriel is giving to Daniel in this spot, as he's there in Babylonian captivity still, is that 70 weeks of years are determined for the final judgment of Israel. That means 490 years is the time period. Now, also notice with me, he says that at the end of the 69th week, Messiah will be cut off. And so a little bit of Bible math for you up here on the screen. You've got 69 weeks of years, so multiply that by 7. And then remember, he's in Babylon, the Babylonian calendar at this time. Hate to break it to you, but your uh, actual calendar you use didn't come around until the 4th century A.D. So they're using the Babylonian calendar. It's a 360-day calendar. That means the date for Messiah to come was 173,880 days, but not from the prophecy that Daniel was given. But notice with me, it says in verse 25, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. At this point in time, the Jews were still in captivity in Babylon. There was no order to go and rebuild Jerusalem yet. And specifically at the end of that verse, the street shall be built and the wall. So here's Daniel. He gets this amazing prophecy, and yet it, the time clock hasn't actually started yet. The time clock doesn't begin, hang with me for a little bit, until Nehemiah chapter 2. So as you get to Nehemiah uh, chapter 2, I won't read through this for the sake of time uh, and your sanity probably, but in Nehemiah 2, what's happening here is uh, now the Babylonians have passed off the scene and the Medo-Persian Empire, the second great empire of the world, has taken over for the Babylonians. And there's a guy in charge named uh, Artaxerxes, but that's a title. His historical name is actually uh, Artaxerxes Longamanus. And he's the one that is in charge of the entire known world, and he's got a guy that's his cupbearer, which doesn't seem like an awesome job, except uh, the cupbearer to the king uh, is actually one of his top advisors. 
So this guy named Nehemiah, a Hebrew, is a top advisor to the king of the entire known world. Now, Nehemiah gets word about the rebuilding efforts that have been taking place in Jerusalem. Because about 50 years earlier, a guy named Cyrus sent the Jews who wanted to go to Israel back that direction to rebuild the city. And they headed that way under a guy named Zerubbabel's leadership. Um, the problem is they didn't have enough oomph. They didn't have enough get up and go to really get things going. And so they kind of settled in and began to just uh, build their own houses. But the walls of the city had remained in utter ruins. The temple had yet to be finished. And so Nehemiah gets this word back as he's in this position of power, and he is completely bummed out. I mean, this is his hometown area, right? He, he's sad, upset by what he's heard. And so he goes into the king for his regular service. You know, he's a wine taster. Not a bad job if you've got to be a king, uh, a servant to a king. You're the guy that gets to take a little sip. Hopefully nobody poisoned it, otherwise you might die. But that said, still a pretty good gig. But one of his uh, job descriptions is he actually wasn't supposed to bum the king out in any way. That in fact, if you go in and bum a king out, especially a guy named uh, Artaxerxes Longamanus, it could be off with your head just for depressing him. So Nehemiah goes into the king to do his regular job, and he cannot get himself in a good spot. He's, he's bumming, right? And so uh, Artaxerxes looks at Nehemiah, sees the look on his face, and in the Brock Ashley version, this isn't in the Old Testament, he says, man, why are you tripping? So he looks at him, he's like, man, what's up? Like, what? why are you so sad? And so immediately Nehemiah's like, oh, this is not good. Like, now I just bummed out the king. But he proceeds to go ahead and say, look, the, the town of my fathers, it lays in utter ruins. The walls are destroyed of the city of Jerusalem. And so he, he prays to his God, is what we're told in chapter 2, and then he shares this with Artaxerxes. And amazingly, what Artaxerxes Longamanus does is he gives him a written decree, an order from the king, a command to go back and rebuild the walls of the city of of Jerusalem. And we're told in Nehemiah chapter 2 that this takes place in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, putting a time stamp on when this order is. Now, if you take that date, March 14th, 445 BC, and you add 173,880 days to it, uh, what you'll arrive at after you factor in leap year, I already did the math, this is going to be okay, you end up at April 6th, 32 AD, what we know as Palm Sunday. The exact day prophesied in Scripture 600 years before the birth of Christ, 150 years before even the order was given to rebuild the walls of the city, Jesus steps foot in Jerusalem as the King of Kings riding in exactly as Zechariah prophesied. Now, I shared all that with you, and some of you are kind of glazed over and wondering what in the heck just happened. I don't blame you, but here's what I really wanted to share. If God is up to something in your life, it will happen exactly as he said it would take place in the exact time frame that he said it would take place in. If you needed any more proof we just laid it out there for you that his word will always stand. And by 
that I mean if he declares something will happen, it will happen. When he says things like all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, that's Romans 10, 13. When Paul records that, you know that it will take place. Do you understand? That these things will come to pass. That Jesus was so determined to be there at that exact time because he knew the time had come for him to fulfill what he had already agreed to. It wasn't an obligation. He volunteered to lay down his life as the Lamb of God. Now then, as he sets foot in the city, no doubt naysayers begin to come up. In verse 39, what happens is the Pharisees, they look upon him and they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And then in verse 40, I love his response. He says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones will cry out. Boy, if you get the opportunity to go with us to Israel in 2023, uh, what I'm going to tell you is they got a lot of rocks. They're everywhere. And so as Jesus is sharing this uh, amazing declaration, they looked around and they go, yeah, there's a lot of stones. There's a lot that's going to be crying out. And what I love about this is that even nature obeys him. <laughs> even nature as much as science would like to say that it does not, and we come up with all kind of crazy theories and try to disprove God in every imaginable way, you cannot disprove what nature proves. The only thing that it appears that does not approve or obey him, um, well, that's us. <laughs> Humanity. He's given us free will. He's given us an opportunity to partner with him. The question is, do you want to praise or do you want to bicker about it? Continuing with our final passage here in verse 41. And now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that had made for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you surround you, close you in on every side, and level you, your children within you, and to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What John records in John 1 verse 11 is that he came to his own, and his own knew him not. They rejected him right there in his own city. And so as we wrap up, I want to share a few things with you. I think as Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem and he sees it and he weeps over it, um, there's three things in particular that, that I believe he notices that he wants us to take note of. And the first one is that he looked upon the city of Jerusalem. And as he looked upon the city of Jerusalem, he notes that they ignored his grace and what I mean by that is we just went through this whole prophecy of Daniel, right? And, and, and this amazing prophecy that they knew. They knew these time frames were getting near. There's a reason that there were lots of little Jesuses popping up all over the place. There was only one that was born of God. But lots of mamas wanted to be the, the mother of the Messiah at this time frame. That's why they called him Jesus of Nazareth. They wanted to make sure they identified him as that one. 
But they completely ignored his grace and his humility as he rode into the city. They were so hell-bent on having a Savior that would come in and knock the Romans out that they completely missed this man that came so that they could have repentance and have salvation, the very meaning of his name. The second thing to note is that he looked within. He looked within the hearts of the people. And as he looked within their hearts, what he saw was a heart of a group that had become black and hard. And by that I mean these religious, not righteous, but self-righteous people who after year upon year, they completely missed what God hoped out of the nation of Israel. You see, when he called them to be a set-apart people out of Egypt, when he brought them through the Sinai and brought them to the promised land, the point was for them to actually be inclusive. They were supposed to be a light to the nations all around them, for people to look and go, man, I want to know what's so different about your God. I want to be a part of that. And then he made ways for them to be included in the nation of Israel. And yet what the religious right did is they came up with more rules and restrictions and all the ways that unless you were the elite and the best of the best and dress a certain way and wash your stinking hands in a certain way, you couldn't be a part of the kingdom of God. They took what was supposed to be inclusive and they made it exclusive. And folks, I want to tell you, when it comes to our Christian faith, God wants this thing to be the most inclusive religion. I hate that word even because it causes us to, you know, ball up inside. He wanted this to be the most inclusive relationship that the world had ever known. That for people in Africa to be able to actually have more in common with us than our own family if we're believers in Jesus Christ. He wanted it to be that kind of inclusive. That's his heart's desire and yet, this is the issue. The heart is always at the heart of the matter. The heart of these people did not want to turn away. They did not want to repent, and so he wept over that. And the final thing that he wept for as he looked at this city is he, he wept as he looked ahead at a city that was headed towards judgment. There was no stopping that. They were headed towards a time period of judgment, and the train was on the tracks. And Jesus could see this. He knew all things. And so wouldn't you know that in just about 40 years, in 70 AD, the Romans would swoop in. They'd had enough of Jewish insurrection, and they would completely obliterate the entire nation of Israel, in particular the city of Jerusalem. And they would not, as Jesus prophesies about here, leave one stone upon another. The temple that they so loved, they tore that thing down piece by piece in order to get the gold out from in between the bricks. It was completely leveled and wiped out. They ransacked the city. Children, women put to death. Somewhere between 600,000 and a million Jews were killed there in Jerusalem by the Romans. That's what Jesus was looking upon. That's what he had so hoped that they would just turn and repent and avoid, and yet they would not. So when we see Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem, what I wanted to point out is that he wasn't weeping because he was weak, because he wasn't tough enough to take it. I mean, go on and read the next passage. Our Lord and Savior gets ready to take a whip out, and he whips some hiney in the temple. I mean, he drives money changers out. It's the very next passage. He does that all by himself. 
He was not weak. He was power under control. He was meek. So as he looks upon this wickedness that was going to come upon these people, and he cries over it, I don't want to leave you in that spot today. Because here's the next piece that I want to remind you of, that for thousands upon thousands of years, it looked like the nation of Israel was dead. They were done for. As done for as any group of people in history. In fact, in human history, there's never been another people group that has lasted more than five generations without a homeland and still managed to maintain their cultural and religious identity. It's never happened until May 14th, 1948. When in one day, the entire world felt bad enough over the events of the Holocaust, over six million Jews losing their lives, they voted for Israel to become a nation again in one day. In one day, a nation was reborn. And what that tells me is that all these prophecies that throughout church history we try to make it all about the church, and I don't blame them, by the way, because it looked like there was no Israel. They were completely dispersed. But it means that the same God that's going to be true to that is going to be true to you and I today. So what I love about our Lord Jesus Christ is that he did not give up on Jerusalem. He did not give up on Israel, which also means he will not give up on me. All the destruction that I was not smart enough to walk away from, he did not, would not give up on me. And conversely, he will not give up on you. He is not a God who gives up, uh, not even easily. He does not give up at all. I love this about our Lord, that if he would not give up on Israel, he would not give up on me, he will not give up on you. This is a Sunday to celebrate hope. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the meaning of Palm Sunday, Lord. We thank you for the amazing and prophetic timing of these events. And yet, if we just left this at the prophetic, I think it would fall flat. Because the reality is, you fulfilled prophecy so that all of us in this room could have an opportunity to live. You chose to empty yourself and make yourself of no reputation, poor, so that we could be rich for all of eternity. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for not giving up on us when we so deserve to just be given up upon but if you wouldn't give up on Israel for 2,000 years, there's no chance you're going to give up on us after a few bad years or decades, maybe. <laughs> we thank you for it, Lord. We praise you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Would you please stand for our closing song? You are good, you are good, when there's nothing good in me. You are love, you are love, on display for all to see. You are light, you are light, when the darkness closes in. You are hope, you are hope, you have covered all my sin. 
You are peace, you are peace When my fear is crippling You are true, you are true Even in my wandering You are joy, you are joy You're the reason that I sing You are life, you are life In you death has lost its sting And oh, I'm running to your arms I'm running to your arms The riches of your love Will always be enough Nothing compares to your embrace Light of the world forever reign You are more, you are more Than my words will ever say You are Lord, you are Lord All creation will proclaim You are here, you are here In your presence I'm made whole You are God, you are God of all else I'm letting go And oh, I'm running to your arms I'm running to your arms The riches of your love Will always be enough Nothing compares to your embrace Light of the world forever My heart will sing no other name, Jesus, Jesus. My heart will sing no other name, Jesus, Jesus. And no, I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms The riches of your love Will always be enough Nothing compares to your embrace Light of the world forever reigns And the church says, Amen. Amen. So, reminder, Friday, oh my gosh, it's terrible. Friday is... Uh, agape feast so hopefully we get to see you guys here at 6 30 on friday uh, looking forward to that there's a sign-up sheet out in the foyer um, we talked a lot today about god's timing and i am not going to pretend to tell you that i know uh, all of god's ways and all of his timing i'm not going to be so bold to say that um, but i do know this that if you're in a spot where you need to repent or if you're in a spot where you need salvation that here's uh, what i do know about his timing that today is a day for salvation. Today's the day. It's not tomorrow. It's not next week. It's right now. So if you're wondering about that, uh, a little bit of insight, it's today. God bless you guys.